This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from Sydney edition. It's Wednesday, May 31st, 2017. On today's show, is there nothing that can't be rebooted and coughed up out of the maw of Hollywood? We now know the answer is no, thanks to a movie called Baywatch. (laughs) (laughs) And then Margaret Atwood's now classic dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale, has been adapted by Hulu into a streaming series starring Elizabeth Elizabeth Moss uh, of Mad Men fame. And finally, the media landscape is changing. Is criticism changing with it? Specifically, is criticism getting meaner? Did it even need to be mean in the first place? Does it take a kind of cruel streak or a sliver of ice in your heart to be a critic? Dana's living proof. (laughs) But however, tonight we're going to discuss the art and the state of criticism with Sebastian Smee. (laughs) Joining me tonight is uh, Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's uh, movie critic, Dana Stevens. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Dana. All right, digging right in. Baywatch was ubiquitous, uh, ubiquitous trash TV programming in the late 80s and 90s. It was cheap to produce content for the days of channel surfing. Like Star Trek and Law and & Order, it was a show that worked, if it worked at all, only in, syndica- in syndication as kind of warmed-up leftovers. To the question, should it have ever existed in the first place, we can now ask why it's been dug up, shot full of steroids and, I'm sorry to say, dick jokes, and put into a million movie theaters worldwide and simultaneously. It is very lowbrow. I'm not sure it's any fun at all. It stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Zac Efron. Let's listen to a clip. Hey, Seth. Hey. New Kids on the Block here is from Iowa. Oh, man. Really? 
Let me ask you this. A lot of oceans in Iowa? No, just ponds and lakes and cocky pretty boys. Hey, Mitch, what happened to that last pretty boy recruit we had? He died. What is this? Lifeguard hazing? I'm Matt Brody. Hold the world record in the 200 meter. Hey! Matt Brody. Matt Brody, yes, absolutely. And we still don't, don't give, give up. A- I don't mean to interrupt, but everyone on the beach is talking about you guys. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to invite all of you to the Huntley. Look, I know that the club's kind of fancy and probably not your scene, but you have a standing invitation. Thank you. Whoa, easy. You okay? Yeah. (laughs) Quality, quality programming. Uh, it was worth the 30-hour plane flight. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about that. All right, Dana Stevens, do you agree that the following categories are, are, are real and consequential? There are good movies, right? Sure. Let's try to recall that tonight. Uh, there are good, bad movies. There are bad, bad movies. And then there's Baywatch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I take it from your review, you did not love this movie. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we really have our work cut out for us now because this is not fun trash. Maybe it's interesting to talk about why it's not and what makes something fun trash because I went into it with all good spirits. This is the first movie I've written on that I've reviewed for Slade in almost six months because I've been on book leave. And uh, and we decided when I went on leave that I would come back for the first big sort of summer splashy dumb movie that would be fun to write about. And it was Baywatch. And so I went into it really hoping for this kind of spirited romp of dumbness. And instead, it just felt like a soggy wad of dumbness. <laughs> and uh, and The Rock couldn't even save it. We had recently a, a, a segment on the show about, well, it was sort of more about celebrity profiles than about The Rock, but we happened to be focusing on this profile of Dwayne Johnson. And, uh, and we all agreed that he's just a charm bomb and that he's able to lift all kinds of mediocre material out of it, out of the gutter. And this, it just, it, it didn't work with this movie. Why didn't it help? You me? wait, hold on. No one has, this movie was fine and fun. Oh, oh, okay. So <laughs> like I would completely put this in the category of good, bad movie. I don't even think it needs to go to bad, bad or like some other level beyond. Like we need to save that level for movies far worse than this movie that don't have Dwayne the Rock Johnson or Zac Efron in them, both of whom are very charming and like affably do second rate versions of what they do in other movies. Uh, it manages to not be horribly sexist. That is true. I said that in my review and I agree with it and I don't quite understand why. I mean, I, I guess simply because, simply because everyone's body is equally dumbly on display and there's not, there's not a particular prurience that's directed towards women's bodies. But I also didn't find, and I think I said this in my review, I don't find that this movie took very much pleasure in its own dumbness or its own kind of sexy slow-mo, right? I mean, where was the fun? Where was the joy and pleasure? I guess you felt it. Yeah, well, so I was a lifeguard as a teen, and I should should be... (laughs) Now she starts to run in slow motion. I should be careful to stipulate, because this is the hierarchy of lifeguards is... There's ocean lifeguards who are the real hardcore awesome people, and then there's just lake and pool lifeguards, which is what I was. Well, these guys are bay lifeguards, so that's somewhere, that's calm waters, right? It's true. I never thought about the fact that Baywatch is about watching the bay, not the ocean. <laughs> In any event, they're certainly more hardcore than I ever was, um, and more va 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 boom. But, uh, like, the, the, so I was in, I had, a, like, a level of lifeguarding interest in watching, and I will say that this movie... 
was far less faithful to like the American Red Cross principles of good lifeguarding than the show. <laughs> the show actually had some like fairly plausible like mouth breathing, but this, this thing opens. <laughs> mouth breathing. <laughs> well, not that kind. Maybe it had both. Anyway, the movie opens with a sequence where The Rock saves a like parasailer who's like kite's gotten away from him and is like bonked down on a jetty very high risk of spinal damage, which means that what you would actually do is like clamp the guy along the spine and then drag him slowly to shore where he could be put on a spinal board. And instead, Dwayne the Rock Johnson like hauls him out of the water and he's like flopping like a B-movie starlet, which is just uh, like it completely undercuts the authority that Mitch is supposed to project throughout the film. So I had a level of interest that maybe others don't share. But I don't know. I, I, I found it harmless. Maybe I just was sick and, and like goofiness was dancing through a fog at me and it was sort of fun. But I do think that the lack of sexism might be part of what... <sighs> okay, I don't know how to finish that sentence. <laughs> the, I went back and watched some of the original show and there, it is so earnest. And it really it operates on these two levels of like just like hapless kids splashing in the water and submerging under. And then these very hot women like looking concerned from the stand. And then just like, it really is just that. And then occasional like crime fighting. Uh, and, and somehow this movie was so knowing, it had the modern thing of like being knowing about the sexism of the old show and having jokes about running in slow-mo instead of just unironically doing it, which made it acceptable, but somehow took some of the can't be fun out of it or something. I don't know. It, it didn't quite play it in a way that would have given it maximum. Does, yeah, it didn't have no, that earnest uh, innocence. Uh, but Does nobody here care about my dumbfounded silence? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm being like jettisoned off into new parallel epistemological realms. <laughs> by one phrase in particular, which is not sexist. The only adjective I could come up with to describe this movie was thigh-gappy. <laughs> it's like really, really thigh-gappy. Or is that just where my eye went? Yeah, I didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> but would you say, for example, that it's a misogynist movie? I mean, it may have a very heterosexist, heteronormative, kind of absurd idea of what gender relations are. That I would agree with. But... But do you think that it's prurently gazing at women at men's expense? No. If there's anything we're gazing at, it's The Rock and Zac Efron's bizarrely over-articulated chests. <laughs> Which really, I, I saw something about this today, researching this, this movie, and I agree with it, is that, is that male stars are expected to be too fit now. The level that of, of cutness that we want from, from shirtless men on film is not even attractive anymore. They just look like terrains on maps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so purely exploitatively and for the purposes of amusing the audience you are pretending to like this movie False. And, to and to defend it therefore I'm going to force you if you can defend the movie then you can defend a specific scene in the movie oh. in which the nerdy oh no I know which one it is aspirant to the lifeguarding uh, career right, that sort of chubby nerd who wants to be a lifeguard yes, right? gets his erection stuck between the slats of a sunbed. <laughs> Julia Turner... Wait, we should add that the scene lasts about ten minutes, right? It's endlessly long. Yeah, right. It, no, exactly. It, it's, it's a full ten to twelve minutes. 
Yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you have a choice. You can either defend that scene or run at me and thigh gap in slow motion. <laughs> Neither. All right, listen, uh, how far can we take a discussion about this movie? It's completely stupid. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted this to be a dialogue is... You know, I know how it is that American culture and its ubiquity and stupidity squats upon my superior and highly refined conscience. <laughs> and if you listen to the podcast, you know this too. But I'm curious how it squats on yours, and so we'll have, we'll have a discussion about that. But I want to say one thing quickly before we exit this segment, which is that there's a way to do this movie well. And it's called 21 Jump Street. Right. right? You mentioned well, this clearly this movie is, yeah, this movie is tr- clearly trying to poach on that territory of 21 Jump Street, of taking a sort of junky old series that no one really remembers that fondly, you know, and, and turning it into something. I don't know. How does 21 Jump Street do it? It's just the writing. It's just, it's clever. It has heart. It has sweetness. It has actual characters. And, uh, and even though it's pretty dumb and pretty raunchy and also probably has some dick jokes and kind of envelope pushing raunchiness, has this kind of overarching sweetness to it that I, this movie lacks. That's exactly the right word. And because of the sweetness and because of the wit of the writing, uh, a line is drawn between irony and shit-eating irony. And you never want to cross that line. But that's, you know, that's Philip Miller and Chris Lord, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a writing team that really has some, some chops and it has experimented in a lot of different genres. They did the Lego movie. They did The Last Man on Earth on TV. You know, they, they feel like they know their way around the pop culture universe and have actual affection for the thing they're reviving. And that's maybe a note to end on taking it out a little bit from why is Baywatch a sucky movie, which is the question, what nostalgia is worth indulging and what isn't? You know, and, and what is this assumption that just because something's old and exists and has not yet been rebooted, that everybody is dying of nostalgia and wants to see it well, again? And I guess part of what I found passable about this movie, and I, it, it may have just been a very low bar in the mood I was in that day, but is it, it definitely follows the 21 Jump Street playbook of constantly recognizing and sending up the ludicrosity of the original series. Like, there's endless riffs in this, probably too many, about the fact that the Baywatch team from the original Baywatch were constantly, like, fighting crimes and, like, thwarting drug heists. And the new guy on the squad, who's played by Zach Efron, who's sort of a Ryan Lochte, disgraced Olympian, who, like, thinks he can be a great... Uh, you know, lifeguard, but The Rock has other ideas, uh, is like, but why? Like, why wouldn't you just report this to the police? Like, you are lifeguards. <laughs> what are you doing? And like, again, it's that, it's that the irony versus the shit-eating irony. Like, they, they, they hit all the beats of the way, uh, of sort of how to lovingly but not too lovingly send up the original thing without having any panache in the execution. But... I don't know. Watching the original, I just did wonder if it was unsend upable somehow. Like, if it wasn't just in the execution of the remake, but also in what the core thing was and just how earnest. Just all that slow mo running. I don't, I don't think that that's the problem. I think the problem is that in the you know, original writer meeting with the producers, they set the bar too low for themselves. They said, this is a no brainer. This is so easy. Dwayne, I mean, it's, it's one of those high concept two-second pitches that no one thought they had to expand into a real movie. You know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Baywatch, will blow it out on a million screens, we'll make a billion dollars, and we'll all die happy. The truth is, the bar actually is set much higher, because it has to be a movie. It's actually a very good trailer. I mean, I laughed my ass off in the trailer. I was completely open to this being an enjoyable experience. But, you know, 
if you don't put something recognizably human and real in the middle of it, it's just boring. I mean, right. it just it's arduous to, to sit through. You didn't care about Zac Efron's arc of learning to be a responsible team player? <laughs> the movie is Baywatch. It's in theaters everywhere. <laughs> Come tell us what you thought about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Get, get psyched. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Moving on, the 1985 novel The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood recounts a harrowing near-future dystopia in which Christian fundamentalists have taken over the United States, imagine that, and are in the process of (laughs) converting women into slaves, one subset of whom are forced into labor as so-called handmaids. Handmaids are assigned to the households of wealthy but infertile women to serve as involuntary breeders. They wear rusty red nun-like habits and white bonnets, that act as blinders and live a super-ritualized existence in which a careless word or even glance could exile or kill them. That was one fucking long sentence. Oh, my God. (laughs) Where's the fucking period? Atwood was extrapolating out from the Reagan presidency, uh, but in doing so, she created a novel with as much claim on us as Orwell's 1984. I had never read it. I I regard it now as a complete and utter masterpiece. Um, And all this was before the election of... Why don't we listen to a clip from the new streaming Hulu TV series based on Atwood's remarkable book. So, old what's-his-name didn't work out? No, ma'am. Tough luck. This is your second posting, then? Yes, ma'am. Good. My last one was brand new. It was like training a dog, only... Not a very smart one. I expect you know the rules. Yes, ma'am. Don't call me ma'am. You're not a Martha. Well, look what the cat dragged in. This is the new one. Hello. Blessed be the fruit. May the Lord open. And Commander Waterford. Praise be to you. May God make me truly worthy. Right. Well. Good. Nice to meet you. You too. Uh, before we begin, I'm curious who I know that it's not legally available in uh, <laughs> Australia yet, but who are we kidding? Um, who's uh, who's seen summer? Sh- shout and holler so that people can hear yeah, it on the podcast. It and who who here is a fan of the novel? It's a book festival. I love it. There's a lot more readers than watchers. Um, Dana, it is incredible really to contemplate the fact that during the production of this television show, everyone in the world, but of course including the cast, producers, writers, behind Handmaid's Tale, 
believed that it would be re released under a Hillary Clinton presidency. Uh, the degree to which its, its pathos, its trenchancy, and its, its relevance have been upped by the election of, uh, is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's inc incredible, the, the, the sudden and totally unexpected timeliness of a book that was... Yeah, I'm sure that's, yeah, that's, I'm sure yeah. scant comforts to the makers of the series, but it's certainly... It's the human race. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, but it certainly adds to the punch of watching it right now. And, and I noticed short, around the time that it debuted in April in the U.S. that there was a, a really great activist action in Texas where is one of the places in, in the U.S. where abortion laws are getting the narrowest, the fastest, uh, where a bunch of women came to the Texas state legislature dressed in those outfits. They came as handmaids and, and did a protest, you know, in those, in those outfits. And that was really all it took. I mean, it was pretty silent, you know. They just showed up and sat, sat in the balconies and watched the legislation as the handmaids, and it was, it was very powerful. Uh, I'm curious to hear from both of you what your history with the underlying material was. I mean, is the book with, with, uh, about which you have a lot of associations? I mean, certainly when you approach an adaptation, knowing the original material or if the original material is revered, um, you know, it, it, it can be displeasing to the people who love the book. Yeah. What was your history with the book? Well, I mean, I hadn't read the book until, until we read it this a couple months ago for, for, in preparation for this segment. I, I'm sure that it came across my desk at some point. I don't know. It was never assigned to me, but you read it back in the day, right? You read no, it in high school I, I only or read it this fall during the election for the first time. And I've read a bunch of Margaret Atwood, but somehow, I don't know the handmaid of it. I thought it was more medieval. Like I didn't, I had the wrong idea of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I fell absolutely in love with it uh, when I read it this fall. And even then before we knew the outcome of the election, it felt pertinent to the conversation and the rise of Trump and the kinds of rhetoric that were being thrown around. And I, it, it's interesting because I think we'll get into this, but the, the politics and power of the book I think are actually quite distinct from the politics of the show. Like the show somehow manages to articulate its own vision, be very respectful of, and in many ways faithful to the original, but have a much uh, more resistancy politics. I think in some ways, Margaret Atwood's heroine in the book is not so much of a fighter. She's a bit of an observer and a hanger back and a um, how did the society get to this dystopian place and what happened after seems more the point of the And it's a book, book about accommodation in some ways. I mean, not pro-accommodation, but it is about the reality of living right. in a totalitarian dictatorship and having to accommodate your behavior. Yeah, and not being the hero of the story, sort of like finding yourself in a dystopia and just what that would be like, whereas the, the Hulu show has a bit more like rah-rah, let's take it all down, like the real me is still in here and I'm, and I'm going to fight to preserve that woman and to have her survive. And I think part of the, what the book is about is the, the original woman disintegrating and, and disappearing in the act of survival rather than survival being an act of reclamation of the, the self from the before. And a very concrete detail you see that in, a concrete difference between the two, is that you never find out the heroine's name in the book. Right, you never learn her name, and uh, and until the end of the book, she remains this kind of cipher. And uh, I guess this isn't a spoiler. If you've read the book, you know it. But there's a there's a beautiful, beautiful coda at the end of the book. It's such a brilliant ending where the time frame skips ahead by something like 150 years, and suddenly we're at this academic conference, and Atwood perfectly 
parodies or spoofs academic language and imagines this conference that takes place 150 years after this Society of Gilead that the book explores and has all these people examining these these papers that have been found from this handmaid, this unknown woman in Gilead and, and talking about what it means. I have no idea whether the show will go there because the show hasn't reached its end and is planning to be an ongoing show, right? It's going to actually extend the plot Just beyond Just renewed for a second season and I think they may imagine it might stay more centered in the the world and and what becomes of yeah Gilead, I mean this I would have resisted that idea because I think the book is so perfectly compressed and has such a beautiful kind of poetic shape and structure I would have resisted the idea of it being extended on except for the Trump election I mean now I think there are a lot of relevant things that it can explore that can maybe it can grow beyond the book but the thing I was going to say about her name is just that it's it's withheld forever in the book and at the very end of the first episode. Elizabeth Moss speaks the character's name directly to the camera. So that right there kind of shows that the, the gambit of the show is going to be more psychological. Mm-hmm. It's going to be more um, uh, interior. You know, it's going to show her interior a little bit more openly. And, uh, and like you say, that it's going to be more of an activist engagement with the viewer. Right. Um, so uh, we took the um, excuse of the Trump presidency to read uh, Orwell's 1984 for the show and now this and what struck me was uh, how 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 having not read them I had misconceived what they were in a way that um, they both uh, you know if you're going to successfully capture what it is that's dehumanizing about a totalitarian society you cannot do it in a didactic novel Right. I mean, it's it's the it's the effect of a totalitarian society to be didactic into every cranny of your human existence. And until I read 1984, I didn't really realize it's a book about a love affair. I mean, it's essentially about Winston establishing a, a totally real and human connection with Julia and having that be you know stamped out. And um, and then uh, and, and there's a similar aspect I think to Handmaid's Tale in in, in that it's very much about the memory of her husband, uh, her relationship with her husband, with her daughter, but also the relationship she establishes with the commander. And what's so fascinating about that is that it's in its own perverse way, it's sort of like the relationship that Winston has with Julia. It's taking place, you know, in the shadows, away from the didactic totality of the, of the dystopian society. At the same time, she shows you in this meticulous way how sexism of, uh, of a, a kind of apocalyptic kind arises out of the bottomless insecurity of, and neediness of men when it comes to women. And I, I, that relationship shocked me for how tr- true it was. Um, you know, that, that in fact the intimate relationship at the heart of Handmaid's Tale is also, it is with the person who's, you know, uh, has agency and authority uh, to oppress and destroy the, the uh, heroine of it. And then the second thing that I got completely wrong about both 1984 and Handmaid's Tale is that they are spectacularly successful as genre novels. Um, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, they have propulsive uh, narratives that work on the level of page turning. And it doesn't surprise me that this can be converted into a, a, a totally, suspe- like, a, a, essentially a successful, um, widely watched television show. I mean, I will say I, I'm really enjoying the show, but I think it does lose some of the subtlety necessarily sure. of the book because the book is so much about uh, about the, the narrative voice and the obscuring of information and the way that Atwood very slowly 
releases uh, important details about this woman and her past and where she came from and how she got into this situation, uh, it can't really be reproduced in show form, and the show doesn't really try. You almost feel like you're learning a new language. The first 20 pages or so of the book are kind of alienating. It like takes a minute to figure out what's right. happening and who's talking and who these Marthas are. And right, because she's to... not interested, unlike the show, in, in kind of laying out the situation, like, here we are there's in Gilead, no and there's, been, there's yeah. been some sort of totalitarian takeover. No, it's, it's taking place in this realm, again, not unlike 1984, where a lot of forgetting has already happened. And she's often, she often says, I don't know how many years have passed. I'm not quite clear how we got here. There's this sense of this veil of oblivion that's kind of fallen over the world, which is incredibly powerful and melancholic and, and is also just structurally brilliant because it makes the book so suspenseful. Mm-hmm. Well, you get, I mean, one thing that I think drives Margaret Atwood's book is she's writing in the 80s and, and the book is very much in dialogue with the feminism and sexism of the 80s and the feminism of the 70s. One of the key relationships in the book is between Offred, who's the, she's of Fred, the commander she serves, um, and her mom, who was kind of like a radical feminist who like took her to a burn porn as a child. Yeah, sort of a second wave classic and mis- kind of mis- like era feminist. She shouldn't even get married, and um, and that character is not uh, apparent in the show through the six episodes that I've watched. Um, and so there, there's this sense of. In some ways, Christian fundamentalism arrives at Gilead, but in some ways, like the extremes of feminine, like it's just more complicated. And the show is simpler. And yet, even though that would typically make me hate it, the show is just. Elizabeth Moss is such an extraordinary actress. She does such amazing. She's such a chameleon. She can look so different in different lights. She's so different in the present and the past. She can do so much just registering moments and uncertainty about how to feel about moments. And not just face. victimization, but humor, right? There's a really great scene where you think she's bursting into tears and she's actually laughing at the ridiculousness yeah. of what's just happened. Yeah, it, it, she's so great. And I do, the show, it has a bit of the, like, women's march, like, you kind of expect them all to show up in pussy hats. It's, like, a little <laughs> over-determined. Um, it particularly, I don't know if you guys noticed this, the, like, final 90 seconds of every episode, the whole thing is, like, very subtle and nuanced, and it's beautifully directed by Reed Murano. The, the way it captures, like, light and duskiness and subtle tones is gorgeous. And then the final two minutes of every episode is, like, this gigantic protest sign in your face, like, loud music and, like... A, a person like screaming and tearing at her hair in frustration, or like all the handmaids falling into step and doing like squad goals, like the resistance. <laughs> like, there's like the, I don't know if it's something about the streaming thing of Hulu and the like network note was like, make everyone really excited to watch another depressing episode of oppression by giving them like a hope of, of triumph or something. But it's totally funny, uh, the way it doles that out. But apart from those moments, like the overall, slightly more hopeful and simple version feels okay. It feels kind of useful at the moment. I'm willing to give it a pass. Yeah, I have to say of the of the new shows that have dropped in this style recently, the bundle of shows, this is this is the one that feels the most necessary to mm-hmm. me to, to yeah, keep up agree. with. All right, beautifully acted, beautifully produced. Uh, uh, the Handmaid's Tale is streaming on Hulu. Check it out. Come tell us what you thought at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, should we, should we move on? Sure. Let's do
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love critics. The author Neil Gaiman said recently, I'm not sure they do anything. (laughs) Um, Speaking for myself, uh, Mr. Gaiman, you're completely right. I do nothing. Um, But our guest tonight absolutely does. Sebastian Smee is the art critic for the Boston Globe, winner of the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, and the author of The Art of Rivalry, which is about the loving but also intensely competitive relationships between a set of dyads, uh, Matisse and Picasso, Lucian Freud and uh, Francis Bacon, de Kooning and Pollock, Degas and Manet. Uh, he is also, and I hope I'm getting this right, he is also a Sydney cider. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage the wonderful critic Sebastian Smee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Great to see you. Um, There are a lot of places to start. There are many places we want to go. We want to talk about the state of criticism relative to the now troubled state of the newspaper business. Uh, But I want to start someplace slightly different, which is, um, does a critic need a cruel streak, Uh, a kind of sliver of ice or a chip of ice, as Graham Greene said, uh, in your heart? Um, uh, or does, or is kindness and sympathy and a tendency to generosity somehow more important uh, temperamentally to the task at hand? Uh, as background to the discussion, let's say that you've been a stipulate you've been a critic both in Australia and the United States, but also in London. Yeah, in the in the UK for four years uh, uh, back in the in the early two thousands. So yeah, it's funny. I, th- I can't help feeling like there's there's a different kind of culture around criticism in each of these places. Um, and it's sometimes subtle, but I, I just feel both in Britain and Australia, but perhaps less so in the States, there's a kind of, um, there's a real taste for, uh, really trenchant criticism and, and sometimes kind of nasty criticism. Um, and I think, you know, I have to be honest, I was attracted to that when I was starting out, um, reading, reading <laughs> criticism. I, I thought, wow, that's great. There's nothing better than seeing a critic really launch into a big target and just meet it head on and, and, uh, and, and knock it down in, 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 you know, witty, articulate, funny ways. It's just entertaining, right? Um, and, you know, of course there are critics like that in the States, um, or critics who don't do that all the time, but just once in a while they do and it's wonderful. But I just feel that there's a, a, you know, maybe a greater level of, of, uh, of politesse or something in the States. And, you know, they might enjoy reading a really tough, uh, review. Um, but they kind of worry about the kind of person who would do that, you know, who would, who would, who would sort of, you know, beat someone up on their typewriter. Um, whereas in Australia and to an extent in the UK, it's, it's, it's sometimes a bit of a blood sport and everyone, everyone kind of gets a bit of a kick out of it. Right. Have you ever, looking back on it, have you ever ripped into someone and, and then lived to regret it? Yeah, it keeps me up at night still. I mean, it's, it's terrible. I, I, I have and, you know, it, it's, it's a funny thing. I think when you're younger, especially, you, you know, you really want to um, mold 
mold the world to meet your own sensibilities in some kind of way. That's one of the attractions of being a critic. You want to say, no, no, this is what I really like, and this, this isn't meeting my expectations in some way. And it's a very egocentric kind of thing in, in, in some ways. I think as you get older, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, I hate criticism that sits on the fence. I, I, I never want that to be the case. But I think you become more conscious that your own sensibilities really might not matter that much. And... Uh, uh, well, they do, of course, but you know you, they can do with some expanding. And I, I think the point is not to be ideological about it. When I read sure. criticism that feels ideological to me, um, I know I'm not going to be surprised. And I love reading criticism that surprises me. Yeah, it's it's the nature of young men to be outraged that the world doesn't flatter their them exactly or, or their sensibilities, and so there can be an element of revenge. Uh, and let's for it to young men when they start out writing criticism and then you grow older and you get... And young more women. Boring. We'll get exactly. <laughs> Sebastian and I are having a moment. <laughs> um, but um, but th- that element of aggression, though, I, I, I think that may have something somewhat distinctively male about it and about like kind of... Um, anyway, but as you get older, perhaps another question or dilemma begins to confront you, which is, who's your constituency in a way? Or to whom do you owe an aesthetic and moral debt as a critic? Is it to the creator, Mm. right, who's taken a portion of their life in time and blood, treasure, and, you know, mental health in order to make something? And what do you owe that inner struggle to produce the creative work on which critics like you and Dana and I, we feed, right? <laughs> or is it a debt that you owe to your audience to tell them that truth and nothing but the truth about something regardless of whose feelings get hurt? Um, or is it to, you know, kind of the story of art itself or some larger narrative that you have going in your head? Um, how do you I, sort those things I out? Mean, I, th- I think it, your loyalty has to be to the audience. I really do think yeah. that's the most important thing. Otherwise, you end up playing kind of inside a baseball. You know, it's 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 um you're talking to this this smaller group of people, and you don't want to offend people's feelings and so on. I always, you know, it's interesting to me going to a museum with another artist or talking with another artist about their contemporaries um, is really revealing because they're savage. You know, they've just got no time for this. They've got no time for that. You know, and, and I admire that. I respect that because they're carving out their own sensibility. They're, you know, they're putting themselves on the line. In, in a way, a critic is much more of a sort of open generalist, you know, who's willing to see, you know, merits in, 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 in this and that. By the way, I can't believe you didn't have me on to talk about, you know, the aesthetics of Baywatch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it's, you, you have to be much more of a, a generalist. And, um, I, you know, I just, what I love in, in criticism is that sort of sense of urgency. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that's, to me, the antidote to the kind of ideological viewpoint. The, the critic who, who sort of sits on his or her principles and, and therefore becomes predictable. Instead, you want prose that is risk-taking and, and has some urgency, which is tough. Yeah. But when you sit down to write, Sebastian, do you feel like... I mean, I, I would have a problem getting a word on the page if I felt like the dialogue that was happening was directly between me and the audience, between this right. abstract mass of people that I'll never know who are going to read. To me, there has to be some kind of third term that I'm kind of running it through, whether I feel like I'm writing it to my editor or to a friend that I'm trying right. to talk about, you know, or sort of to this kind of conversation, you know, sitting down with friends and talking over 
what was worthwhile and what wasn't in a work yeah. of art. Somehow, if I conceive of the relationship as being between me and this amorphous mass of potential readers, then I can't start the conversation. I know, I know exactly what you mean, and it's tough. And I don't have any particular person I think of necessarily. Um, but yes, obviously, the editor is always in your head. Um, but it's, uh, yeah. I, I <laughs> 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 um, but I, I, I think that. Um, it's interesting to reread pieces you've written, which I try not to do. But you know, when you when you see it after you've written it through the artist's point of view or the curator's point of view, for me, if I'm writing about art, or just through someone you've just spoken with, you know, through through imagining them reading it is what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. and and that completely changes your view on what you've just done, and it's it's terrifying. Sometimes it's that act of imagining someone else reading it that just sends me, like, I feel queasy, and I have to go to bed, and I feel sick. Um, It's a really weird thing. But I try to keep it out of my head while I'm actually writing. But it's weird. I don't. I don't think of an, amor- an amorphous sort of general audience either. I don't know what I do. It's a- yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm always surprised when you talk to creators who think criticism is useless and it, they just want to connect directly with the audience and and only care whether the audience likes it or not. Because to me, it feels like a work isn't complete until you've consumed the criticism about it as well. Like the the critic helps you see the thing. You know, and you can see it and have your own response. But it's so fun to see a work and then go read a bunch of reviews afterwards and have that put it in context and help situate it for you in the story of art or the story of movies or the story of, you know, the, that duo remaking '80s TV shows with more Alan than whoever made the Baywatch movie. Like it, it, you, you, it it feels like the it feels like the piece of art or the work is like a tossed ball and the right. critic is catching it and. As, a, as someone who's more a member of the audience, I like to watch the whole game. And so when there are critics who, or when there are creators who claim that they think criticism is valueless, I just, I find that so alien and confusing. Yeah. I understand why they don't read it or don't want to. It seems horrible. Oh, if I were a creator of, of things like movies, especially that require, you know, hundreds, thousands of people to create this object, I think I would try to stay away from my reviews entirely. Absolutely. I think I wouldn't be able to keep creating otherwise. I mean, there is this. M- there is this mammoth asymmetry, right, between what it takes to make something of, you know, any importance whatsoever. I mean, what it takes to write a book, you know, years out of your life. What it, you know, what it took for, you know, Francis Bacon or, or, or Freud to become the painter that they became. It wasn't simply the act of painting that canvas. It was really creating a self, you know, a, a second self out of an inherited self you know, sort of a, a life journey or whatever, and the time it takes to write 400 words mm. and put it in a newspaper mm. and have it be, for most of the general public, a definitive judgment on that thing, that discrepancy really is mammoth. And I think the only way to deal responsibly with it is to, is to consider that yeah. when you write those 400 words. Right. It's a massive asymmetry. I agree. And and you know when when someone says to you, "I oh, look, I I love your review. An artist, you know, it meant a lot to me." Which doesn't, you know, when that happens, it's so touching and it means so much. But I always say, you know, look, this is your show. It's so easy to write an 800 or even 1500 word review. You know, this is your life. This is extraordinary. And it's it's really humbling. You know, when you think about that asymmetry, you've got to keep it in mind. But I think of something that that Adrian Searle, the, the Guardian's art critic, said. It's very simply just said, you know, an artwork deserves to be met by more than silence. You know, and and this is what you guys are doing every week. It's it's exactly what you were saying, Julia. That the constant 
you know, the, the need to talk about it and to throw it around. I really feel that my, my love of art came as much from reading stuff about it uh, early on as it did from actually looking at it. I would say that balance has changed now, but early on it was reading great critics um, who really got me thinking about stuff in, in, in a totally new way and get, got me excited about it. That was the thing. Let's pivot there because um, one thing I know we really wanted to talk about was uh, arts pages. Newspapers are in you know, really dire straits commercially, uh, uh, you know, financially, and one of the first things that they've been shrinking uh, are arts pages. And that, you know, that's going to change the landscape, the cultural landscape, if essentially newspapers go to freelancers, they have, you know, vastly fewer pages to devote to the arts. It sends a message that somehow they're trivial or expendable. Uh, you know, the idea of the crit critic of longstanding reputation and gravitas may disappear with, with you, Sebastian. Oh, it, look, it's, 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 you know, it's really... Uh, What's been happening here in Sydney, you know, um, uh, to do with the Sydney Morning Herald, which has been the main paper here in Sydney uh, for a long time, they've just recently announced really huge cuts which are going to specifically affect art, art criticism, uh, arts criticism, I should say, um, and coverage of the arts generally. And look, it's the same in the United States. There's so many papers there. And it, it's really sad, and especially you know, speaking of asymmetries, when, when you think about the number of people who go to museums, it's massive in both countries, all around the world. Um, and when you think of the amount of money that goes into building up these institutions, which are you know, centuries old, and the the artworks in them. I mean, the idea that these things aren't going to be written about or covered properly and, and with intelligence and with real engagement by a city's main newspaper, to me it's just ridiculous and, and it's a tragedy. And I think that a lot of editors and a lot of kind of you know, money people at, at these newspapers are being incredibly short-sighted um, if, they, if they do cut in these areas. It is tricky in the, in the current media environment, though, like the... It sort of cuts both ways in terms of the types of criticism, but those hit pieces, like a really satisfying <laughs> jab, that sort of review can go viral. I think it's happened actually recently more with restaurant reviews. There was one recently in The Guardian, and there have been several that Pete Wells, the New York Times critic, have written where it's just like really fun to watch critics savage a restaurant in some ways because it's also a way to savage rich people. Uh, right. And so <laughs> food criticism is sort of its own bag. But, um, you know, so the, the, the impulses of digital readership uh, or, the, or the way that they affect criticism, they can sort of push more towards negativity. And then also there's a sense that, like, the arts are under threat, the criticism's under threat. In some ways that can foster a kind of boosterism, like... You know, how many art reviews do I get to write? Right. I'm only going to support the stuff I... It, 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 it can kind of cut both ways, I think, in terms of how the economics of criticism can affect the actual judgments that people make on the work. Yeah, I mean, in book criticism, and there's been some pushback against this, I don't know about in Australia, but in book criticism in the U.S., precisely because the, the publishing industry is under you know, is under real threat, that there's been a certain move toward... I mean, not puff pieces, not only saying nice things about books, but... If, if, an, if, for example, a debut novel comes out and it's not very good, right, the, uh, uh, the New York Times book review might choose not to review it at all. This has happened to me before that I've been assigned reviews to review a book for that publication. I start reading it. It's somebody's debut. They put their heart into it. And it's just really not very good. And I'll just write the editor and say, can we just drop this? Yeah, you know, what's the point? Yeah. What's the point of trashing this person's book that, you know, then probably very few people will buy whether I review it well or badly? 
And uh, I'm not sure that, that I completely disagree with that. I don't think that that's, you know, um, uh, pulling punches or, or being really No, it's a, it's a kind of sensible calculation. I agree. I, I think that, you know, the problem, though, is that when all criticism ends up being, uh, uh, you know, positive because you've left out those things that you, you know, you didn't want to be negative about, then the reader stops trusting the reviewer and, and the newspaper generally. Right. You know, they're, they're I mean, I think the distinction would have to be absolutely, I agree with that, but you, you can't have a, you know, a, a review body that only puts out positive reviews, but it might have to do with the status of the object that you're reviewing, right? If it's a major book or if it's the second novel by someone, you know, who had an important first novel, then have at it, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. But, um, right. but it's a little bit of a question of, you know, are we just going to march to the little lamb of a brand new right. novel right. Into, the, into the slaughtering pen for, for no reason? I agree. And there's absolutely no need for that. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, about the same calculation with emerging artists when they're getting their first show and so on. You, you know, you do, you do take that into account for sure. But it's interesting. I mean, you know, I've just been... Uh, at the Venice Biennale where the US representative is Mark Bradford um, and he, he's just a superstar of contemporary art at the moment, great, great artist his first show in New York got savaged by Roberta Smith um, and you know, he says now, I deserved it you know, and it actually it, it, it was a good slap around the cheeks and I went home and I thought about it and I mean I've read the review it seemed a bit unfair to me but you know she's she's a great critic and and she she explained herself really cogently um but it had this incredibly energizing effect on him I mean people he still talks about it people in his studio still talk about it um I don't think it was a pleasant experience for him but it seemed to really get him going and get him moving on to the next stage that he needed to get to to become a great artist well, I can settle the debate forever about what the function of criticism is here tonight, only because I was reading uh, your wonderful book earlier today, uh, Art of Rivalry, and um, in it I discovered that um, Lucian Freud went to Jamaica on holiday and was at a kind of turning point in his own life and career, and his host was a man named Ian Fleming, who was writing the very first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, and so the function of criticism is to give middle-brow dorks like me little cocktail party factoids to carry around <laughs> with them everywhere they go. We but all love factoids. Real, in, in a slightly more serious vein, the real function is we just happened to go to the uh, New South Wales uh, Museum earlier today together, and uh, there was a room filled with uh, paintings, canvases by Freud and by Bacon, about whom I had towering but mostly instinctive admiration for both of them as artists. But I walked into that room having read your, I mean, quite honestly, brilliant chapter on the two of them, and I understood the milieu, I understood their biography uh, as artists, I understood the arc of their career uh, as artists, I understood the rivalry uh, and in, intense mutual uh, uh, inspection and, and uh, relationship they had with one another, and I could see the paintings, right? I wasn't really consciously thinking about you or, or your work at that moment, but the relationship between sight and understanding, you know, uh, formed a kind of synergy, and, and I was able to see them in ways that I couldn't before. So that seems to me the function of criticism. I mean, the object doesn't appear to us naively. Uh, it actually um, appears to us via our understanding, and, and uh, the more you contribute to your understanding of something, the better you see it. Yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words. I mean, but it, it's true. I mean, I'm, I always debate, you know, how much, you know, 
should we just experience art without all this knowledge around us kind of getting in the way? Because I love that moment where you just see something that surprises mm -hmm. you and, and, and you know nothing about it, and it's so moving, it's incredible. Um, but stories and facts and, and history and context, they also deepen your, you know, your feeling for things, don't they? They really do. And I think criticism has a role to play there, but also a role to play in reminding us that in the end, it's often just about you and the work of art, and there's something very precious and in need of protection about that, I think. All right, well, we conclude uh, our podcast by doing something called endorsing. Um, would you stick around and endorse with us? Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Julia, why don't we start with you? What? Do you always start with Dana? <laughs> Dana, why don't we start with you? Dana. All right. What do you have? Um, so, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time trying to think of some sort of Australia-related endorsement that would also not be me presumptuously coming down to Sydney and telling Australians about their country, which I know next to nothing about. And, uh, and so I just reached back into my own cinematic past and thought of a semi-Australian artifact that was very important to me. This is probably not news to anyone in this room, but since we have listeners all over the world who might not know it, I'm going to endorse Walkabout, the Nicholas Rogue film from 1971, um, which is not, strictly speaking, an Australian film. It was made here, and you know, it takes place in the outback and has unbelievable vistas of Australia and certainly taught me a lot about Australia. Uh, but, but Nicholas Rogue is not Australian. He's British, I believe. Does anyone, any of you know where Nicholas Rogue comes from? I think he's a British director. Um, it's from 1971, and it's a very simple and stark story of these two children, sort of teenagers, a teenage girl and her younger brother, who get lost in the Australian outback as a result of you know, misunderstanding with their family trip. And so they're just wandering in the middle of nowhere, and they come across this indigenous boy who's on his walkabout. He's having this kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, transformative adolescent ritual of walking about through the outback on his own. And uh, they don't share a language, but they're all adolescents kind of coming of age, and they wind up having this sort of walkabout together that becomes in part a love story between the white girl and the Aboriginal boy, and, and also just a sort of story about lostness and, and about terrain. And uh, it's... I, I, it's a profound, beautiful, and great movie. So probably most people in this audience are somewhat familiar, but if you haven't seen Walkabout in a long time, it's, it's really quite an experience. Um, so yeah, Nic Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout from 1971. Great movie. Um, Julia, what do you have? I have three, but I'll be brief about all of them. <laughs> Number one, The Rainbow Lorikeet. <laughs> this is sort of a parrot-like bird, but it appears in Sydney, uh, apparently that's hilarious, uh, <laughs> with the frequency of, say, like a morning dove to our North American listenership, and it is like you melted a Crayola box and like slapped it on a bird, like it is so bright, and it just insouciantly flops about the parks of Sydney, it's Wait, gorgeous. It flops about how? Insouciantly. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not all birds are insouciant, but this one is... 
Second, uh, I was very sad to learn about the death of Dennis Johnson, a wonderful, wonderful writer, some of whose books are very long and imposing. And if you have not yet read any of his books, you should read Train Dreams, which is an astonishingly beautiful novella. Finally, pursuant to our conversation about criticism, Amanda Peet, the actress, wrote a wonderful piece in uh, the New York Times about having been absolutely savaged for a theater role at the very beginning of her career and how she never, ever read the review. Savaged in the Times. And the piece, of course, links to the review, but she claims to have still never read it 25 years later. And of course, as soon as you finish her essay, you immediately go read the nasty (laughs) review. Um, But both the original review and her piece about it are very thoughtful and smart and would be a good compliment to our conversation. Fantastic. Sebastian? Well, I've just been reading... uh, Anne Enright's The Gathering, which is such a great novel. It won the Booker Prize many years ago, so I'm behind the times. But uh, I've just got a bit of a crush right now on Anne Enright. I, it's just such a, you know, it's, it's a dark novel that da- deals in dark subject matter, um, uh, child abuse and, and so on. But, you know, there's, I was talking before about risk-taking and urgency. There's just such a strong feeling of, of urgency in the prose. You know, it's, it's wry, it's bitter, um, but every sentence is... is um, just incredibly fresh, and I've turned over the corners of, you know, almost every page. She's such a great writer, so I'm looking forward to reading more of her, but that really stands out. A second one I would just say, just throw in, since I, I suppose I'm expected to to uh, to say something about art, but there's uh, a great show by a photographer called Bill Hansen, who will be familiar to Australian audiences. Um, it's on uh, in Melbourne at the National Gallery of Victoria, but uh, he's just a, a great Australian photographer. His work also, full of kind of Darkness, literally darkness. He, he's a wonderful um, photographer who carves out bodies and landscapes from from darkness. They're almost all nighttime shots, um, and it's just a very moving experience. A show of about twenty large-scale C-type photographs in one room. So I recommend that. Fantastic. Um, well, in, in keeping with the precedent set by my um, co-hosts of uh, sucking up to the host country, uh, I'm going to endorse. Uh, a band that I just find so bewitching, The Apartment. Um, <laughs> are they from New Zealand or something? Because <laughs> you don't know the apartments, all right. Um, uh, the Evening Visits and Stays for Years, a great record. No, spell, uh, no Song, No Spell, No Madrigal is a, a collection of their stuff from the 80s. They're just a remarkable band. And then um, uh, one last talk up, the all-time greatest song is Catalan Kane by the Go-Between. I found the room. Uh, it, there's a great video on YouTube of the two principal songwriters of the Go-Betweens. Uh, I'm forgetting Grant McClendon and... I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm talking about... Well done. Talking about the genesis of the song and um, the, the, the one who didn't write it is describing the pangs of jealousy he felt when he first heard the song you know, played for him by a songwriting partner. And he said, he, he, he goes, childhood. He said, no one had ever really done that in a pop song. Not quite that way, that, that really gnawing homesickness, you know, only a self-pitying adolescent prep school boy can feel. Um, not that I know from experience. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that song is, to me, is, it really honestly is the greatest two and a half, three minutes in uh, pop history. So the song Cattle and Cane by the band The Go-Betweens. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dana, thank you. Thank you. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you.
We're not done here. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Hence these credits. Why would we not be part of the Panoply Network? <laughs> anyway, you can buy, I've never noticed that before. You can check out our entire roster at panoply.fm. Our Twitter, uh, Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and the wonderful Sebastian Smee, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for coming out.